please take the Bibles you have with you and turn them to the very end of the book of Revelation, the 12th chapter. The Apocalypse, as it is so called in the Greek text. Revelation chapter 12, and I do uh, beg your pardon for not submitting that in time to the staff to, uh, to get it printed in the bulletin. Uh, had I been more organized and prepared and methodical, etc., I think I probably should have, could have done that. But uh, with that said, that's where we are. It doesn't say so in your bulletin, but Revelation chapter 12. And we're going to consider the first six verses. And so please listen very, very carefully and most reverently as I read God's most holy, inerrant, and infallible word. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with a sun, with a moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. The word of the Lord for the people of the Lord. Thanks be to the Lord. Let's pray. Fathers, we come before you to step out of this world of darkness into the light of your Son, we do pray again. Even the words of the psalmist, who said that thy word is a lamp in my feet and a light into our path. That you would take your word and illumine our path in this dark world. That we might know how, therefore, to live before you. And even now, kind sir, we do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Uh, just for the sake of time, permit me to uh, just jump into the text and try to set uh, uh, a context. Because as you know, a text without a context is a pretext. So you shouldn't even listen. But here we are. It's uh, A.D. 95 to 96. It is late in the reign of Emperor Domitian. John is now the author, if you don't know this, the John the Apostle is the author of this last book of the Bible, the Apocalypse. John is now, at this point, the last living apostle. 
His brother James, you remember, was beheaded by Herod, Acts chapter 12. History teaches us, by now, the apostle Paul, dead, beheaded under the reign of Nero. Peter, crucified, inverted. John is the last living apostle. And at this point, actually, things are not going too well for the apostle John. He himself has been banished from society, exiled to the prison island of Patmos. It is an ancient Alcatraz. Like off the coast of California, this is off the coast of modern-day Turkey in the Aegean Sea. It is just this pure volcanic rock jutting up out of the Aegean Sea, uh, on which you could just, in the background, I suppose, hear the, the waves of the ocean crashing against the sheer rock wall cliffs of this prison island to which John has been banished as a political prisoner, a slave, the sentence to dig in the dirt until he dies. But given to John are these glorious visions that he is in turn to pass on to the churches of Asia. These folk, these good folk in the first century, these Christians living in the Roman Empire, who are bitterly suffering for the faith, bitterly persecuted. And if we were just to even take a moment to examine the internal evidence of the text, for example, in chapters 2 and 3, we would see that these folk have been blackballed by the labor unions because they won't participate in the pagan parties for the industry idol. And so, for example, uh, Thyatira, one of the churches to whom the letter is written, is a, is a huge leader in textile industry in the, in the ancient world. You remember uh, Paul met Lydia, a woman from Thyatira, in the book of Acts. Uh, and so it is, it's a, a significant industrial center. Uh, and, and they have these pagan parties then, these office parties, which are pretty rank and sexually immoral, as you can read in the text. And so these believers, they will not participate in the pagan parties for the industry idol, and they're banned from the marketplace. They cannot buy food uh, or, or drink uh, to provide for their starving families. In addition, they are objects of governmental conspiracy theories saying that Christians are not good citizens. They keep refusing to say that Caesar is Lord and instead maintain that Jesus is Lord and curios. And so then they're viewed as, as insurrectionists, revolutionaries. Their property is confiscated. They're evicted from their homes. They're imprisoned. Just to give you one example, they're executed. Uh, notice uh, chapter 2, let's just say verse 13 there. Uh, Those who did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you. And so here is the leader of the church, Pergamon, Antipas now has been slain. And that is the context, what is going on. They are executed, imprisoned, John himself exiled, banished. And to them is sent this glorious apocalypse that unveils great hope. Now, uh, we should also just say uh, one other thing about how to interpret, I suppose, the Revelation. Uh, none of us are unbiased. We're all biased uh, when it comes to the study of Scripture. Perhaps we uh, grew up in one tradition. Perhaps we listened to a favorite radio preacher. Perhaps we watched someone else on television. Maybe we read a commentary written by someone else. And so we all come to the text then with these, with these presuppositions. And so I'm happy to inform you of my own. Uh, I've been very influenced by the church fathers, particularly Augustine 
in the city of God that he writes. Uh, Mike, incidentally, was reading that. And so there's Augustine, right, in the Roman Empire, and he hears that the Germanic tribes, if you can imagine it, the Germanic tribes sacked Rome, the city of the world, the center of the world. He thought it was the end, it was over. So Augustine, and incidentally, all the Romans blamed the Christians. Because had they not turned from, you remember, the classical gods of Rome, this wouldn't have happened. Rome would not have been conquered and ruined. And so Augustine sat down and wrote then a philosophy of history, which has very influenced me, the city of God. Uh, I've been influenced by the Protestant reformers as well, particularly uh, the creeds of the Reformation. We use the Heidelberg Catechism, Westminster Confession of Faith, Second Helvetic Confession. And so it's no surprise, perhaps, my particular perspective. But I would argue then that we should not read the apocalypse as a series of events in a chronological order. We might find ourselves very confused. For example, you will read in chapter 6 about the islands and the mountains fleeing. And you keep reading chronologically, you see it again in chapter 16. The islands and the mountains are gone again. But you think if they're already gone, how could they be gone again? So it seems to repeat itself, and I would argue it is. It is repetitive. What we have then, from my perspective, the revelation is a series of seven parallel visions. It should be read with this, uh, what scholars call this, progressive parallelism. And so you have a series of uh, seven parallel visions, and each, though, is progressive uh, after, the, after the other. Each goes, uh, the one after the other goes deeper and deeper and deeper into the mysterious and eternal plan of God. But each of these visions then run from the time of the first coming of Christ into the second. And each goes deeper during that time span into the eternal plan of God. And so it might be like uh, watching a war or a battle from particular perspectives and vantage points. And each uh, vision gives you a different view of perhaps the same thing that is transpiring during this same time span. But here in chapter 12, the book takes even another turn. Chapters 1 through 11, we have what is going on. Uh, on a surface level, if I may say so, not to be superficial at all, but the first half focuses on what is taking place on earth, the struggle between the church and the world. And then chapter 12, as it were, takes us behind the scenes of human history to unveil a deeper spiritual background. And then it, the, the text from 12 on answers the question, to an extent, why? Why? Why is there so much hostility directed against the church? Why are Christians being shunned and scammed and imprisoned? Why is John, our leader, exiled? Why are our children taken away? If Jesus is really the reigning Lord of history, then why are Christians like Antipas dragged into the streets and brutally murdered by wicked people? And on the surface level... We could say it's the Roman Empire, you've got entrenched political ideologies, uh, there's a clash of culture, this collision of worldviews, economic exploitation. But then here in chapter 12, you know, it will not allow us to remain there because chapter 12 lifts the curtain then on the stage of human history, which is pulled back to unveil the deeper reason in the plan of God. Why? The answer, spiritual War, cosmic conflict 
in this unseen dimension of reality that is all around us. And here in chapter 12 and 13, then, we have the introduction to these characters, then, are these challenges in this cosmic conflict that is seen in the rest of the book where we'd happily just sit here this afternoon and read it together, which I'd be willing to do, incidentally. But here we have, uh, in, in verse 1, the first combatant in this cosmic conflict. Notice, a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And so once again on this prison island of Patmos, the island, the sky above it, is turned into this glorious Omnimax theater from horizon to horizon. And John sees on the screen of the sky a woman. The most glorious woman ever imaginable. Stunningly attractive. Her beauty is simply enchanting, beholding. On her head is, is uh, a crown, which might mean to us different things. Uh, it was just brought to my attention that, I guess last night, Miss Alabama, for example, was crowned. Uh, and all due respect to her, I don't even know who it is, and all the lovely ladies uh, competing there for that coveted prize and all their beauty, and all their, their charm uh, and attractiveness, together they dim and pale in comparison to the beauty of this woman. Notice her crown is not laced with, with jewels. Notice it is a crown of stars. Stars. And so this woman is far more significant than Miss America, or Miss Universe. She is the most important of women, and the clothing that she wears only serves to highlight her unequaled prominence. Notice John describes her evening apparel. Notice her shoes. The moon conquered under her feet. This is a woman of dominion and power. And notice her gown, girls. You might notice her gown. What is it? It is the sun shining in all of its brilliance. And so we have this woman then of unparalleled splendor. And yet, in all of her captivating glory, the woman is not perfectly happy. She's unsatisfied in life. I would even argue that she's utterly miserable. Notice why. Verse 2, she was pregnant and crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And so here's this lovely lady, totally miserable because she is caught in the travail of birth. And she is writhing there in this agony, in this unmet expectation of deliverance. And so notice what the text is showing us then in this picture. Here is this woman, exalted above all others, peerless, unrivaled in beauty and celebrity, but at the same time she is a woman in great distress, utterly miserable and utterly helpless. And so what happens? Does someone take her to the hospital? Does a doctor arrive on the scene? No. A dragon. Verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. And so here's the second combatant then in this cosmic conflict. This enormous red dragon. 
Now, just a few years ago, I was uh, visiting family in Germany. And my sister and her husband took me down along the Rhine River on the east side, just south of Bonn, in the Siebengebirge area, to visit this mountainside, this mountain, and on top of it, these ruins called Drachenfels, which means dragon's rock. Because in German folklore, the hero Siegfried killed a a dragon living in a cave on the mountain, and hence the the castle ruins, and the mountain itself is called Drachenfels, dragon's rock. Now, isn't it interesting that there is then dragon lore from Germany to China, Africa in between. All these different cultures around the world all have these this lore, this folklore of dragons. And you might wonder, just, just how are we to account for this? Uh, uh, well, then some might suggest, well, look, it's just the result of this genetic trait from our evolutionary past. Perhaps this random genetic mutation that, that uh, would have ensured the survival of the species by producing in our, in our pre-human hominoid ancestors this, this fear of monsters. And so really it worked out to this evolutionary advantage because it kept them from wandering around in the woods at night and, and maybe accidentally walking off of a cliff and dying, which would jeopardize the natural selection. So it's just a dragon gene that's inherited. Or perhaps could it be that in the history of the world, coexisting alongside humankind... There were gigantic reptiles of massive proportion and size and strength that that could be labeled by no other term except dinosaur, which the ancient civilizations called dragons, which the scripture names as Leviathan. Job 38 following, uh, Isaiah 27 verse 1. There's the twisted servant Leviathan. He kills the ancient dragon who lives in the sea. And so even the prophet Isaiah reports, records rather, the reports of the ancient mariners that saw these great, massive reptilian uh, creatures that lived in the deep like dragons. And so they may have just been leftover dinosaurs. Indeed, the last, few and far between, a vanishing species, but still roaming around until hunted out by Siegfried and St. George and all these others that, that, that we have these uh, folklore and legends of. But I just point that out because skeptics will say, well, look, you can't believe the Bible. It's not historically reliable. It's not even scientific. It doesn't even talk about dinosaurs. Contraire. Leviathan is his name. And John here takes this dragon lore that is familiar to ancient cultures around the world, you see, and he uses it. Uh, this common culture lore uh, of the ancient world, and he uses it described as cosmic battle. But what we have here, as you've already noticed, this is no normal dinosaur. This is no normal dragon. He far from departs normal size and shape. See, this reptile has seven heads. Unnatural, totally deformed, hideous, repulsive. And he is so gigantically enormous that with its terribly powerful tail, the monster knocks down one-third of the stars from heaven and flings them to the earth in anger. But not only is the cosmic terrorist dangerous, more importantly, he's bloodthirsty. Notice verse 4. His tail swept down a third of the stars from heaven and cast them to the earth. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth 
so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And so here we have this very graphic, R-rated scene in the Scripture. It's almost too graphic for mixed company. But here it is in the Scripture, which certainly challenges this prudish view of the Bible. You know, this Victorian mindset that the Bible only has these nice stories in it. But rather, here's this R-rated scene that we've got to deal with in order to understand the text and understand how we're to live before God in this dark world. Here's this most glorious of women, notice now, in labor, riding a childbirth. Her feet are there in the stirrups, and this dragon anxiously awaits at the footstool so that the moment the child appears, he might eat the baby. Now, what do we think of this? Eat more chicken? Dragons are hungry too? Maybe it's a cause for vegetarianism? No. The point is not that the monster is hungry, because if the dragon were starving, he could eat the woman, who would certainly be more filling. The point is not that the red reptile is ravenous, but murderous. The focus, you see, it's its violent hatred for the child. Because this child, like no other, infuriates the dragon. This child, like no other, is therefore the target of the dragon's wrath and becomes the dragon's victim because there is something about this child, you see, that drives the dragon to anxiously await his bloody breakfast. Now what does this mean? Beloved, I'd submit to you that if we were to read this with a wooden literalism, that we'd never understand the apocalypse, we'll be left to linger with those in the comic book land of science fiction and Greek mythology. But rather, we should understand that there are different genres of literature within the Scripture. God is an exciting God, and this doesn't give us one type of literature. But there are multiple types. Or there's history, you know, narrative like David and Goliath, and you should read it at face level for exactly what it is. And then there's poetry, like the Psalter, which takes some thought. Uh, there's parable, like um, Bud just read from Matthew 22, the parable of the wedding feast, this device uh, that, that Jesus used to teach and to often entrap his enemies. Uh, and then there's uh, the epistles, like John writes for three, uh, Paul writes many. And then there is apocalyptic, that which we're dealing with right now. And all these different types of literature have to be dealt with as intended by God because it doesn't glorify Him to deal with them other than He has intended. And, and John teaches us right here in the text how to deal with it. Notice again verse 1. A great sign appeared. Verse 3. And another sign appeared. The revelation is a book of signs. And what do signs do? Signs signify. That's what they do. They symbolize. And so the revelation is a book of symbols that should be read symbolically. And that's what John tells us in the very first verse of the book. The revelation of Jesus Christ he sent and signified it by his angels unto his servant John. 
And so, if we look at it in this perspective and try to look for the symbolism that is intended, then it would keep us out of uh, these fanatical interpretations which make, I think, the cause of Christ look so crazy from time to time. And so, with respect to interpreting the, the apocalypse in our text here, then we've got to look at not just what the text says. The text says, here's a woman, here's a dragon. But what do they mean? That's the issue. What is the meaning of this woman? What is the meaning of this dragon? Well, we should start with the dragon, I think, since it's the easiest, and John explicitly states how we should interpret it. Notice, drop down to verse 9. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. And so the dragon symbolizes Satan. And therefore he's pictured as, as unnatural in appearance, even for dinosaurs. He's totally deformed, this gruesome monster, which is what he is. And then he's described as this serpent-like creature. Uh, and this image of the snake there is in our minds, which is the befitting symbol then of Satan, as it has been since the beginning of the world. Genesis chapter 3, symbolizing his subtlety and his shrewdness. And then red, the color of bloodshed, war, violence. And then, of course, he has seven heads, which is significant itself because the number seven is a very important symbolic number in the Scripture. God created in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. And so seven is a number that is used to symbolize completion, perfection. In the Gospels, you remember... Peter wanted to become a, a spiritual stud. And he said, well, how many times then should I forgive my, my, my brother, Lord? Seven times? And Jesus turned the tables on him and said, no, 70 times seven. Seven compounded. Seven exponential. An endless number of times that we are to forgive one another. And so in the number, so rather in, uh, with this special number of the book of seven, it's just on steroids. Or rather, the number seven in the book of Revelation, it's everywhere. Uh, over 50 times, Jesus write, or John writes to the seven churches of Asia Minor. He sees the Son of Man among the seven golden lampstands. And so over and over we have this number, and here it is again, to depict the dragon. And so then how are we to envision this, and what is the, the, the meaning of this? Well, what does the dragon do? Notice again verse 7. He's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And so knowing that the devil is deceiver, and the number 7 is described then in his role of deception, we see that this is deception perfected. He is deception fulfilled. He is deception and malice and evil on steroids. And so notice then what we have thus far to summarize. We have this great cosmic conflict. One combatant is the devil, symbolized by this blood-red, seven-headed, serpent-like, monstrous dragon. But then there's this beautiful woman. Who is she? Well, the meaning and identity of the woman is associated with that of her child. That is where it's found. Notice who she gives birth to in verse 5. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod 
of iron. Beloved, it's my guess if we just had a skeptic visiting with us today that didn't know anything at all about Christianity, but just a few things and was inquiring about the Bible, he or she would be able to identify this male child who will rule the nations, the king of the world, the Lord of the earth. But particularly, I know that you can identify him as such because you're students of the Bible and have been for some of you for decades. And you know this is a reference to a messianic psalm, specifically Psalm 2. And incidentally, Psalm 2 and Psalm 1 used to be the same psalm until later divided by a redactor. The point is, this is the very introduction of the Psalter, the book of Psalms, which is the worship manual for the Old Testament people of God. It is their hymnal. It is what they use to sing praise to God. And so any uh, Old Testament uh, Jew, any uh, uh, New Testament believer would recognize immediately this messianic psalm and the reference and the implication of it. But you remember Psalm 2, God says to the king, You are my son. Ask of me, I'll make the nations your inheritance and you'll rule them with an iron scepter, you'll dash them to pieces like pottery. And so this is a reference, you see, to the Messiah as a male child who alone rules the world with an iron scepter. And so here we see this recapitulation again that I informed you of. We're back again to the, to the first advent of Christ, his coming here on the earth. And here's his birth, but from a different angle that, that we're looking at it. And so uh, we can see that the child then is the Messiah, and the identity of the woman therefore becomes clear. She is the mother of the God-man, the Messiah. But not Mary, as our Roman Catholic scholars and friends uh, maintain, uh, the Blessed Virgin, to whom they refer as the Queen of Heaven, based on this passage. And we have to remember again the woman is a sign she symbolizes something beyond herself. So she's not a literal then uh, person. And then who is she? The glorious woman gives birth to the Messiah. Not Mary, but the woman through whom the messianic... Uh, the, the, the woman is the messianic community through whom the Messiah is born. Throughout the Old Testament, there's a common theme depicting Israel as the mother of the people of God. For example, you could turn to Isaiah 54. Uh, Sing, O barren woman, you who never bore a child. Burst into song, shout for joy, you who are never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of she who has a husband. And so Jerusalem is often described as a mother of the people of God. And so this woman then, in John's vision, is the mother uh, uh, of the people of God. Israel, through whom the Messiah is born, for whom the nation waited expectedly and longed to deliver like a woman in labor pains. But the woman doesn't merely symbolize the Jewish community. Notice who the rest of her children are in the last verse of the chapter, verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Who are those? those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. The rest of the woman's offspring, you see, are Christians. And at this point, Gentile believers. 
And so the woman is not just the mother of the ethnic Jews, but the Gentile believers as well, which shows us that there is continuity then between the people of God. From the Old Testament to the New, God's chosen people are one. All the offspring of this one woman, or to put it a different way, the offspring of the same father of the faith, Abraham, the father of believers, whether circumcised or uncircumcised, composed of the one olive tree, made of the different branches, natural and grafted, one chosen race, one people, one family, one vineyard, one beautiful bride, whose children then are believing Jews and Gentiles. This woman then, you see, is the true Israel, the church, the people of God throughout the ages. And before the birth of Christ, the covenant community through whom the Messiah descends, by whom he is born and comes into the world. And before her stands a dragon ready to devour the child. Which just makes us wonder, how long has this been going on? How long has he been standing there? Since the beginning of the world. Take uh, your Bibles and turn back to the very beginning. Genesis chapter 3. It's very important. Genesis chapter 3. You might recall that uh, at the very beginning of the world, after our first parents rebelled against God so defiantly that God cursed the world and he cursed Satan. And beginning in verse 14, the Lord said to Satan this stuff. And in this curse that God says, embedded within it, as you know, is what scholars call the proto-euangelion, the first promise of the gospel. And that is, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, and you will strike his hill. And so God announces to the devil in this curse, he announces in the very hearing of the first couple, our first parents, that there will be enmity between the serpent and the woman, between the devil and the woman. That is uh, hostility, hatred, warfare, enmity. And there's a deeper reason then for this, hospi- for this hostility. Because what it says at the back of the verse, he shall bruise your head, but you, or he shall crush your head, but you will strike his heel. And so if we are reading along in this first promise of the gospel, maybe half asleep, there's a speed bump here in the text in Genesis 3.15 that jars us from our complacency and apathy because in the, in the, in, within the text, it suddenly moves to this focus on a he. Third masculine singular pronoun, he. And so we're talking about this enmity between Satan and the woman, and then her offspring, plural, and his offspring, plural, but then it's suddenly the focus is on her offspring, seed, singular, he. Third masculine singular male child. And so what this is about, Satan is forewarned then at the very beginning of the world that somewhere lying in the midst of the future of humanity, from the very fog of the future, will arise and be born a male child that will come for the specific purpose of crushing the head of the serpent. 
dealing a mortal blow to Satan, killing and conquering Satan himself. And here in our vision in, John, in Revelation chapter 12, the woman, the beautiful woman that John beholds with the stars on her head and the moon at her feet, clothed in the brilliance of the sun, is no other woman less than the woman pictured at the very beginning of the world, the mother of the godly, the godly line of offspring, the Old Testament church through whom the Messiah would come, the woman whose offspring would crush the head of the serpent. And so now it's all clear. You see why the dragon is there at the birth stool waiting to kill the child. Because he knows the reason for which the male child is to be brought into the world. He heard the promise at the very beginning of the world. He was there. He gets it. He gets it more than the woman does. She had a hard time figuring it out. And she could never wrap her mind around it throughout redemptive history. But he was there. He understands it. He knows that if this male child were actually to be born, then he, Satan, would be crushed and conquered and cast into the lake of fire and eternally damned and doomed. And so throughout the history of the world, he watches and he waits in dread and in fear, planning to somehow abort the pregnancy of this woman. And so, beloved, as you can see, what we have here is a nutsh- the, the Old Testament in a nutshell. In one picture, we have the history of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is not a bunch of isolated stories bound together by patent leather. The Old Testament is the progressive unfolding history of redemption. The Old Testament, you see, is the progressive unfolding history of how Jesus came into the world and why he came into the world. Or to put it conversely, to go along with our text, the Old Testament is the history of the dragon trying to prevent the birth of the male child. And no doubt, at the very beginning of the world, he would have expected the first promise of the gospel perhaps to be fulfilled immediately, and so he influences Cain to kill his brother Abel. But the woman bears another child, Seth, after the dragon fails. She bears Seth, through whom the Messiah, the male child, would descend. And it may be dawn on that point, uh, uh, maybe it dawns on the dragon at that point that the solution to his problem isn't going to be so simple. And so he stands in front of the woman again to abort this pregnancy, and he tries another tactic, and he entices the sons of Seth to intermarry then with the perverted lineage of Cain in order to corrupt the human race. And perhaps it might seem outlandish and impossible, but rather he is so successful that within just ten generations of Adam, the whole world is ruined and fit for nothing but destruction via a global flood. And the dragon's perhaps convinced that he's cut off the lineage of the male child, but the offspring of the woman is preserved through one righteous man, namely Noah, through whose lineage the Messiah is born, and the dragon's plan is foiled. And so again, he stands in front of the woman, trying to prevent the birth of the child. This time, in the days of Joseph, via a worldwide famine. 
And so it looks like as if the children of Israel will perish. But as you know, Joseph is sent ahead providentially into Egypt, becomes the prime minister of all things, and the covenant family survives. And the lineage of the male child is preserved. Enraged at his defeat then, the dragon stands before the birth stool to abort the pregnancy, and he convinces Pharaoh to have all the Hebrew baby boys thrown into the Nile and murder. But just seemingly coincidentally, there's Pharaoh's daughter just happens to go out and bathe one morning in the river, and she spies this baby boy whom she adopts as her own son, who becomes a prince of Egypt and delivers God's people from their slavery and bondage, and the lineage of the male child is preserved. And so furious and frantic, the dragon tries a new strategy, and he seduces Saul, as you can recall, to kill David. But David dodges the javelin, escapes, evades Saul repeatedly, and so for the son of David, there is yet a future. And again the dragon tries to abort the pregnancy, and he influences the wicked king, Queen Athaliah, as you recall, to murder her own grandchildren, the royal descendants of David. But the infant Joash is hidden in the temple for six years, and the dragon's plans are frustrated again, and the lineage of the male child endures. Infuriated, the dragon continues and deceives the nation with, and leads them into apostasy so that we have the, uh, the, the, the Assyrian invasion and conquest of the northern kingdom, the Babylonian captivity of the southern kingdom, but the male child's line is preserved, and we could go on and on, but in one Last desperate hour, the dragon convinces Herod of a coup. And the crazy king decides to murder every single baby boy of Bethlehem. But Joseph was warned in a dream, you remember, to depart. And when the assassins arrive at the house, the bread on the table is still warm. And Joseph beyond the city limits in the darkness with a male child. The dragon could not stop, you see, the male child from being born. And so he moves to plan B. And he decides to murder the child now that he has come to be delivered. And he decides to devour the baby. And so in the wilderness temptation, again in Nazareth, he entices a mob to try to throw Jesus off a cliff. Bud just read from Matthew 22, the Sadducees, the Pharisees plotted to kill him, but they couldn't get him alone. Over and over, then finally in this last act of fanatical desperation, the devil himself possesses Judas Iscariot, who betrays Jesus in order to have him arrested. And Christ is crucified, and Satan celebrates and hell rejoices, and the demons dance, and the pagan priests party. But, but, the text says, but, but, verse 5, her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Beloved, here in one phrase, you see, the apostle telescopes the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension into heaven of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't have to elaborate. He's written a gospel on it. Gospel 
Apocalypse. This is a book of moving pictures and symbols. And in our mind's eye, we have one photograph, you see, in our mind's eye impressed upon us of this child being caught up to God and to his throne. Notice the scene. Here it is. Just as the dragon is about to bite into the juicy baby and devour him. At this epic moment, you see, in the history of the world, this is beyond that. This is the pivotal moment, you see, in the universe. The sombrero galaxy is infected by what happens at this moment because the entire galaxy fell with Adam's fall. The entire universe has been brought to ruin, and therefore when John closes the book in Revelation chapter 22, he writes, Behold, I saw a new heavens and a new earth. And so this event here affects the solar system, the universe, and everything in it, just as the baby is about to be devoured by the dragon, the child is caught, you see, from the claws and the clutches of the dragon and taken to God and his throne as the dragon watches on frightfully in panic. Or as the children say, freaking out. Because he suddenly realizes he is defeated. By planning for Jesus' death, you see, the dragon had planned for his own doom. The deceiver was deceived by his own diabolical scheme. You see, he was caught in his own trap. It had never entered once in his dark mind that for the seed of the woman, the way of victory was the way of defeat. Exaltation through humiliation, life through death, glory through suffering. And so here, in fulfillment of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the first promise of the gospel, the very moment the the serpent struck the heel of the male child, the male child turned and crushed the head of the serpent once and for all. And on the cross, that is what Jesus did. He delivered a fatal blow to Satan. And though he is not dead yet, like any wounded animal, he is dead. Dying and more ferocious than ever because he's dying and he's hurt and he can't breathe and he knows that his time is short. And so he's more ferocious, more dangerous than ever before. But as we sing, and a mighty fortress is our God, but lo, his doom is sure. The only thing delaying his final destruction is the passage of time and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in glory and power and in majesty. And until then, I present to you this cosmic conflict. The battle of the ages, of which the battle lines were drawn at the very beginning of the world. Which means then for us, we're all caught up in the battle. We're all engaged in the battle. We're all embroiled in the battle whether we realize it or not. And so we might sit in our pew and think, I'm in no battle, Satan doesn't bother me, which would indicate the reason he might not bother you is because you're already on his side. 
Do you see who he's after in verse 17? He went off to wage war against the woman and the rest of her offspring who hold to the testimony of Jesus. The dragon is enraged at those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. And so there is this battle that is going on in which we are all part of. It is inescapable. The battle lines are drawn at the very beginning of the world. We are all caught up in it. Which means then, here's my point, number one, you must choose which side to belong to. It is inescapable. We might think, I won't decide, but we must understand, as we said in the military, no decision is a decision. To remain undecided is to decisively decide against Christ. And so a decision is inescapable. You must choose sides. And that is the application of the text. We all must choose and decide what we are to think and believe about the male child. Either faith in him or fury and hate against him. And that God alone be glory. Let's pray. Father, we